This episode of Indie Film Weekly is brought to you by the American Institute of Architects' third annual I Look Up Film Challenge. Register by June 26th at ilookup.org. Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a no film school podcast. I'm Liz Nord. I am Emily Buter. And I'm John Fusco. It's June 15th, 2017, and on this week's show, how to shop for lenses on a budget, updates from the Producers Guild Conference, how streaming and traditional media companies are teaming up for some good old-fashioned swashbuckling, and as always, news you can use about new gear, upcoming deadlines, indie film releases, and Ask No Film School. Welcome to this week's show. We're coming at you from downtown Brooklyn, New York, home of No Film School. And as always, we're here to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy making films. With all the trade publications this week obsessing over the relative non-news of the Emmy nomination process, which has started and runs through June 26th, our headlines this week are focused on the business side of the business, starting with... The Produced By Conference in Los Angeles. Every year, the Producers Guild of America gathers top industry talent in New York and L.A. for two days of panels, conferences, and industry announcements. This year's L.A. Produced By Conference took place last week. One of the topics that really unsettled attendees this year was the issue of backends, or profit participation for producers after a film has seen revenue at the box office or from streaming services. I'm often unsettled by backends. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. As Jonathan Handel from The Hollywood Reporter wrote in his article covering the conference, quote, a panel of undertakers might have had better news for producers than the profit participation experts who gathered Saturday afternoon at the Produced By conference on the Fox lot. Yikes. A producer on Amazon's Oscar vehicle of yesteryear, Manchester by the Sea, a group of lawyers and a CPA gathered to deliver kind of a harsh reality check. And here it is. Producers can't expect to make as much money as they used to be able to make beyond their initial contractual salary. Of course, that wasn't always the case. According to litigator Neville Johnson, producers saw a really good profit from back ends in the 70s and 80s. But from the 1990s onward, it was, quote, as though they put in red bold, you will never make any money. This is a really complex issue, and I don't want to get into too much detail on it today. Suffice to say, it involves something called arbitration, otherwise known as the bane of the American legal system's existence. But it's great that we're finally getting to talk about the money left on the table for producers after a theatrical or streaming run. One of the lawyers on the panel even said she was looking for $500,000 recovery for a client who had proof that a studio or a streaming giant had underreported revenue on her film in order to avoid having to divvy up the cash. There's one beacon of hope, though, and that's bonuses. Producers can receive them after a film is successful at the box office. But they're nebulous, and they're often based on good faith, which is never the way to go in Hollywood. And here's some more news from L.A. this week. Film L.A., the city and county's official film office, has created an initiative to encourage indie productions shot digitally in L.A. The Digital Makers Initiative will reduce the cost of film permits for small and digital first productions by two-thirds, This is huge, as the current cost for a permit application is $660, and that's only where the charges begin to stack up. The new pilot program is open to productions with a cast and crew of up to 15 people for interior filming and six people for exteriors. And I should note that the program does not include permits or road closures or parking, all of which are very expensive. So go forth skeleton crews shooting digital in L.A. Awesome news. That is really great news. It's nice to report something positive for once. (laughs) So last week, we talked about the hacker group known as the Dark Overlord that was successfully leaking big shows and movies pre-release. And of course, they're only one of many, many entities that could fall under the category of pirates. 
Well, this week, several companies who've been battling each other on other fronts, namely streaming media like Netflix and traditional media like MGM and Paramount, are banding together to try and stamp out these pirates once and for all. This coalition of more than 30 companies, including Amazon and NBC Universal, is calling itself the Alliance for Creativity and Entertainment, or ACE. And they're going to try to combat what they've reported as 5.4 billion downloads of pirated films and TV shows last year alone. So we'll see what they can come up with. You may remember that the Motion Picture Association of America tried to do something similar by banding together with internet service providers to come up with a system to punish pirates. But as you can tell by the uptick in piracy, it didn't really work. Womp womp. We hope that the Alliance are more successful. (laughs) I wish I had like a sword sheath a sound effect (laughs) there you go (laughs) (laughs) all right guys even though there isn't a major film festival occurring at the moment bam cinema fest happens this week but that's not a major film festival um just fyi but even though there isn't one happening i am still here to bring you your favorite show segment the bottom line with emily booter the bottom line this time we're not talking about acquisitions per se We're actually talking about offices full of boxes, otherwise known as box offices. In a report released this week by the International Union of Cinemas, and yes, that does exist, the European cinema admissions were up 2.8% last year, but box office slipped, hitting 8.4 billion euros, otherwise known as $9.42 billion. Wait, I don't understand. So more people went to the movies, but movies made less money? Yes. Yes, 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 yes. If I were you, I would be wondering, how is that freaking possible? Because this is basically a simple word problem on a state test. If more people buy tickets to the movies, box office revenue also goes up. And I can almost see the little crude graph accompanying the question. And my heart dies a little bit inside because I hate word problems and they haunt my nightmares. But there's a variable we didn't consider, Liz, and it's currency devaluations. This is indeed what accounts for the 4.5% decrease in box office receipts. It isn't all bad news, though. Some countries like the UK, France, Spain, and Poland saw formidable upticks in box office revenue. But in Germany, admissions fell 13%. The European box office accounts for a quarter of global box office revenue. I'm actually surprised it's that much. I would think Asia and India would um, have a much, much bigger percentage of global box office. And now here's Charles Hain with the gear news of this week. Good morning, everybody. So the top of the gear news this week is that Adobe has added support for the GH5 10-bit video along with a whole host of other upgrades to Premiere Pro. So a lot of people continue to be annoyed at the subscription nature of the Creative Cloud, but you really can't deny that Adobe keep the updates coming nearly constantly with the, we no longer do major versions, we just constantly release stuff business model that they've gone to with subscription. Um... 10-bit GH5 video support is pretty great to have natively. A lot of people love doing native video in Premiere and don't like doing transcodes, although for big enough files, I always think transcodes are worth it. And um, people have been doing alternate workflows and transcoding workarounds to get that footage into Premiere since the GH5 came out back in February. It's really one of the modern frustrations of filmmaking. That, like, a camera will come out with a cool new workflow, and then it'll take so long for Post to support it that, like, the next wave of cameras will almost be out. So it's nice that within a couple months of the GH5 hitting the street, we're going to have the support from Premiere Pro. 
Uh, and 10-bit out of a camera under $2,000 is still pretty great. Continuing the trend, we also have news out of Atomos for the new EVA1 RAW camera from Panasonic that the Shogun Inferno from Atomos is going to be supporting the EVA1's formats from launch. The EVA1 shoots a weird 5.7K size, and that's going to work over 6G SDI from the beginning. And then once Panasonic rolls out raw support with a firmware update after the camera's out, Atomos is committed to making that integration work as quickly as possible. So that is great news. These announcements are coming before the the camera is even released, which is super cool. Final bit of gear news this week, Sigma has released the full-frame version of their CineZooms. We reviewed the Super 35 version of their CineZooms back in February and walked away very impressed. And it's really exciting that the full-frame ones are already coming out. They're a T2.2 throughout the whole line. And the fact that they cover full-frame is the really cool part. Full-frame is definitely something everyone's really excited about. You're going to see a lot more cameras with it in the future. Right now, for full-frame video, you're looking at something like 5D Mark IV or the 6K Dragon. But there's going to be a lot more movement in bigger imagers in the future. And since you hope to own lenses for a long time, the full-frame CineZoom is something to look at. It's also something most of us could probably afford as opposed to like a $30,000 in a Zoom. It's like a $4,000 in a Zoom, which is boss. Great. Thanks, Charles. And we'll be back for Ask No Film School right after this message. This summer, the American Institute of Architects invites architects and filmmakers to collaborate on films for the third annual I Look Up Film Challenge. Architects plant the seeds that blossom into stronger neighborhoods, towns, and cities. This year's theme, Blueprint for Better, challenges filmmakers to capture a project that highlights the powerful social impact architecture can have on communities. Register by June 26th at ilookup.org and submit films by August 13th for a chance at cash prizes and national distribution. All right, we're back. And this week on Ask No Film School, Mohan Babu wrote to us with a question about lenses. He's studying cinematography in India and wants to know, which is the best lens to buy for my Sony A7S Mark II? Charles? Mohan, that is a great question, and it's a frequent source of frustration for many filmmakers. You save up the $1,500 to buy a camera body, and you're so excited to get it, and then you look around and you discover that like there's an infinity of lens choices, and it feels like most of them cost more than your camera did to begin with. So, like, I recently switched to an X-T2, which is, like, an $1,800 camera body, and, like, I think I've already spent more than $2,000 on lenses for a camera that was only $1,800 to begin with. So I totally feel your pain. The best place to start, I think, is usually a versatile zoom, which means, like, a reasonably good zoom range, reasonably good performance, but it doesn't have to be top of the line. It's the lens you know, you think of as being like the kit lens that you sort of always leave on your camera by default. Uh, the A7S uses Sony E-mount, and there's a Sony E-mount 24-240 f3.5-5.6 to lens for around $1,000 that I think is going to get you through a lot of situations. So its limitation is it's only a 3.5 aperture when all the way wide, and when you zoom all the way in, it'll be a 5.6. So it's not going to be like an amazing low-light performing lens. But then again, the A7S II is so good in low light as a camera that you might not need super wide aperture out of your lens. It's a really good zoom range that's going to get you some landscapes and and some portraits and some great close-ups all for under $1,000. After that, you could also look at upgrading to like the f2.8 
8 version of that lens or the G Master, but these are like double the price. And are they worth twice as much? When you're just starting out, probably not. Once you're a professional and you're shooting on this camera all the time and you're delivering client work, the extra durability you're going to get, the extra consistency you're going to get out of those lenses will be worth it. But the G Master from Sony or the L series from Canon, they're really designed for professionals. And I don't know that the cost is necessarily worth it when you're just starting out. Once you've got that good jack-of-all-trades zoom lens, then I would start adding specific primes for specific jobs. Like if you're really into street photography, Sony has a $300 28mm pancake lens that makes the camera so small you can easily stick it in your pocket and it's totally unobtrusive. If you're really getting into like product work, a really nice macro lens could be great. There's an 85mm macro that opens to a 1.8 for around $600 uh, from Sony. That'll be great in low light at the 1.8. It's also going to be great in macro. So you get like a double winner. Maybe you use it for some night shots. Maybe you use it for some product shots. You got a lot of options. Uh, another thing to think about is maybe going for used lenses. A lot of people are wary of used lenses since they could be damaged or scratched. And if you're buying online, you might not be able to see that in the pictures. So I don't know that you necessarily are ready to like just browse eBay and Craigslist and grab a random lens. In the short term... I think sites like B&H and Adorama and Sammy's that have used sections online where you can evaluate the lens and they evaluate the lens for you and they'll give you a grading and a report are a pretty good bet. Also, I personally like buying used stuff because that moment where you first scratch something that's brand new always breaks my heart. And like if I can get a used lens where like someone else has already scratched the lens barrel so I don't have to feel the pain of adding that first scratch – and I save a couple hundred dollars. And like the part that matters, the optics aren't scratched. I feel like it's like a win-win. So I think we'll have links to all the lenses I just mentioned in the podcast's Great. article. Yeah. Thanks, Charles. My pleasure. So here are the movie openings this week. Coming to Amazon Prime Instant is a favorite of mine from Cannes last year called Patterson. On 622, it's going to be available. It's written and directed by Jim Jarmish, and it's a quiet observation of the triumph and defeats of daily life, along with the poetry evident in its smallest details. Very poetic. Yeah, I wrote that. Amazing. I, I love it. I didn't write it. Because <laughs> IMDb. Oh, okay. <laughs> it stars Adam Driver and Golshefte Farahani. And on Netflix as of today is Mr. Gaga, A True Story of Love and Dance. This doc by Israeli director Tomer Heyman won the Audience Award at South by Southwest last year. It's the story of someone who's actually quite famous in Heyman's country and in the larger world of dance. It's Mr. Gaga himself, choreographer Ohad Narin, who directs the celebrated Batsheva Dance Company. Is Lady Gaga named after him? Possibly. There's Mr. Gaga and Lady Gaga. It's his wife. <laughs> That's what the documentary is about, the true romance between <laughs> – no, actually, this guy Noreen is a really interesting character. He um, He's in his 60s now, but one of the reasons he's so well-known in Israel is because he refused to bow to government pressure to change a controversial military-themed dance piece that was scheduled for a performance during the nation's 50th anniversary gala celebrations. This kind of reminds me of some news that happened this week about the Shakespeare uh, performance in Central Park. Oh, yeah. Very controversial. Yes. In case you all weren't quite aware, we have an ongoing venerable theater series here in New York of Shakespeare in the Park. Free performances every summer. People line up for hours to see it. And there was kind of a new twist this year. 
Donald Trump was starring in Hamlet and he gets assassinated. <laughs> you guys are so wrong about these plays. <laughs> Wait, is it not Hamlet? It wasn't Hamlet. It's Julius Caesar. Juli- oh, right, Julius Caesar. <laughs> no, I didn't say it. That's true, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Donald Trump is... <laughs> Let me talk about Shakespeare, okay? Let me just do the Shakespeare talking, okay? Julius Caesar is about Julius Caesar, very briefly. Uh, Julius Caesar appears in the beginning of the show, and it's mostly about, like, the people who murdered him's reaction to the murder and, like, the psychological and negative effects that it has on their lives, like Brutus. So, like, that that line, E2 Brutus, that's from Julius Caesar because Julius Caesar turns to him when he stabs him, and he's like, E2 Brutus? The public's latest uh, rendition of it it, it features like a a contemporary American president that's basically Donald Trump. He has a a wife with a Slavic accent that dresses like Melania Trump. He like lives in a a gilded sort of tower, and it's he a has thinly like, veiled allegory. Is yeah. what you're trying to say. So, yeah, and the whole irony undermining it all is that the if you've actually read the play or seen the play, you know that they don't advocate for assassination. Like it's all about why. Basically, it will ruin your life if you try to assassinate someone in the name of democracy. Yeah. And so the the controversy was that um, Delta and Bank of America? Some some major por- corporations, more than that. Really? There, there were was more like, than that? Yeah, I think oh, okay. there were a few. Well, I just heard about those two, um, and they, they both pulled out of the uh, production. The reason these plays are able to be free is because there's major corporate underwriting. And so when the public theater decided to go controversial, you know— they lost some major cash. So let's call Mr. Gaga in to fix this problem, please. Yeah, hopefully Lady Gaga is going to sing at the next Shakespeare in the Park. <laughs> anyway, all of that had very, very little to do with Mr. Gaga, but I liked your interesting side note, Emily. And coming back to the film, uh, Mr. Gaga, A True Story of Love and Dance, Variety said it was the most exciting modern dance doc since Vim Vender's Pina. So- Pina! <laughs> I had, a friend, I had a friend who would, I, would, I saw that movie a few times at, um, in college, and like Pina is a, is a you know masterful choreographer, like Mr. Gaga mm-hmm. himself, and that movie's pretty awesome. But he would always go Pina anytime. <laughs> We've gone so off the rails, listeners. Pina. I hope you're still with us. So moving on to the next Netflix film that's coming out this week. It's peanut. <laughs> no, no, it isn't. And no, it's butter. <laughs> oh, yeah. What? <laughs> peanut, peanut, peanut butter. butter. Oh, peanut butter. I got it. <laughs> the Stanford Prison Experiment is coming to Netflix on June 17th. It's directed by Kyle Patrick Alvarez, and it won the Alfred P. Sloan Feature Film Prize and the Waldo Salt Screenwriting Award at Sundance in 2015. So it's based off the true story of 24 male students selected to to participate in randomly assigned roles of prisoners and guards in a mock prison situated in the basement of the Stanford Psychology Department, led by Dr. Zimbardo. At my previous place of employment, IndieWire, I interviewed Ezra Miller about the sociopolitical implications of the film, and what I thought what he had to say was pretty interesting. Here's what Miller had to say. I definitely think what Zimbardo put forward in the wake of this experiment is that when something horrible happens in our society, we are very eager to point fingers of blame at a single individual. I think that a large part of the I Can't Breathe and Ferguson movement that has sprung up around all of these people's deaths has to do with the fact that this problem is massively systemic. We've created a situation of a racist state, just like Zimbardo created a situation in the basement of the Stanford Psychology Department. 
Now we're living in those power structures. And when someone acts on the power structure in a violent way, we all act horrified. The truth is we all bear communal responsibility in the system that we collectively create in society. Smart man. Very good fashion sense, too. And coming out in theaters this Friday is The Book of Henry. Director Colin Trevorrow returns to the indie scene with this drama after the huge blockbuster Jurassic World. And he's also rumored to be on the heels of starting work on Star Wars Episode Nine. But I also heard this week that Edgar Wright is rumored to be in the running for director for that, which would also be pretty cool. A little bit more cool. The film is about a single mother who discovers a scheme in her son's book to rescue a young girl from the hands of her abusive stepfather and sets out to execute the plan at any cost. Naomi Watts plays that mommy, and Room's breakout star Jacob Tremblay plays Henry. And guess who plays the daddy or the guy that does the bad things? Oh, it's who plays the pop-pop? The pop-pop? It's the guy from uh, Breaking Bad, Hank. Mr. What's Gaga? His, what's his name? What's the actor that plays Hank from Breaking Bad, the bald guy? Oh, yeah, he's good. He's real good. Wait, what? Walter White? No. No, no. Walter White's brother-in-law. Oh, Hank. Yeah. I don't know his name, but yes, Hank. Him. Him. Cool. So moving on to opportunity deadlines, it's worth a mention that one of our most popular regular posts, our massive list of grants that all filmmakers should know about, the summer version is up on nofilmschool.com, and it uh, it breaks down grants into every category with due dates and information. It's a super, super good one, so we'll link to it in the podcast post. But we're going to mention some specific opportunities here. The first opportunity we're going to mention is the Blue Cat Screenplay Competition, which has its deadline on June 26th. This has prizes ranging from 15K for Best Feature to 10K for Best Short, as well as prizes for UK scripts and international scripts. It's in its 19th year, and it's also accepting pilot submissions now. Every screenplay will receive one written analysis, which is great, and the best screenplays receive over $40,000 in cash prizes. NYTVF's Independent Pilot Competition, or IPC, has a deadline on June 28th. NYTVF is New York Television Fest, just uh, to clear that up. And the Independent Pilot Competition is their flagship annual initiative, accepting independently produced original television pilots and series, short films, and short-form web series from around the globe. If your project is episodic in nature and is meant to be consumed in multiple chapters over time, then that's what they define as TV. If your project is accepted, then you are exposed to potential development deals with production companies like Lionsgate, Nat Geo, The Travel Channel, and Sundance Channel, only to name a few. And finally, the National Film Board of Canada Filmmaker Assistance Program has a range of deadlines in June, depending on which province you live in. If you're a Canadian citizen or a landed immigrant, the Film Board of Canada has 10 provinces that offer emerging filmmakers $3,000 to $5,000 grants a year and technical services to complete your film. So as I said, the deadlines depend on the province, so be sure to check them out individually. Go to the website. We've linked to it in the post accompanying this podcast. We've got some upcoming festival deadlines. On Friday, the Chicago International Film Festival has their deadline. This one takes place in October in Chicago, and it's one of the longest-running film festivals in the U.S. at 53 years. It's Academy Award qualifying, and every year they hold a new director's competition with a selection of first and second feature films. Another festival we've mentioned several times on the show is the New Orleans Film Festival. Its deadline is also on Friday, and this is the final deadline. It takes place in New Orleans in October, and it's one of the few film festivals that's Oscar qualifying in all three Academy-accredited categories, which are narrative short, documentary short, and animated short. And 
Surprise! It's recognized by Movie Maker Magazine as one of the top 50 film festivals worth the entry fee, it's, as it has been every year since 2012. And the final festival deadline we have for you today is the Bend Film Festival, which has their final deadline on June 22nd. This festival takes place in Bend, Oregon from October 12th to the 15th. And it's a near constant fixture on the 50 film festivals worth the entry fee list. It's one of the top 100 reviewed film festivals on Film Freeway. And it has cash prizes, including a best of show prize for $5,000. There's a best narrative feature prize, which has a $60,000 camera rental package from Panavision. And best documentary feature, which has a $1,500 cash prize. And now for weekly words of wisdom. That's <laughs> Thank you, Emily. I felt like we needed some fanfare. You guys know when you do that, that's like, isn't that from Blues Clues? It is. <laughs> oh, don't I worry. Thinking, I know. I thought it was like royal trumpets. No. <laughs> it's from Blues but Clues. But we keep doing it on the podcast. And so, yeah, there's a lot of Blues Clues on this podcast. And we have a direct connection because my brother, Daniel Nord, was on the very first animation team for Blues Clues and helped create the characters. I thought you were going to say he was Steve. <laughs> no, but it was funny because there were always these rumors at the time that Steve was a huge junkie. So I remember constantly asking my brother, like, does this do drugs? Does this dude do drugs or not? What's the answer? Pina! <laughs> okay. Never know. It's one of the many, many mysteries of this podcast that I shall leave as a mystery. And I'm going to go into my weekly words of wisdom. Burr, 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 burr. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so the British Academy of Film and TV, or BAFTA, has put out a great video series profiling industry people who've won BAFTA awards. And I wrote up one that I particularly liked this week with Michelle Clapton, the costume designer of Game of Thrones and more recently the Netflix series The Crown. Something I found particularly useful and somewhat surprising about her approach is that though she will spend months researching references and prepping for palette and tone, she doesn't actually begin costume design for a show's leads until she meets the actors. She said, quote, It's very difficult to start the creative process of the actual designs until you really know the actors, because so much of it is what they bring to it. Once you start fitting with them, something happens. End of quote. In other words... Just as actors don't want to directly mimic the real-life people who they're portraying, the costumes aren't direct copies of their source material, so they like embody some of the actors' traits. And this hadn't really occurred to me before because I assumed that most of the design work was done without the involvement of the actors. So the piece has lots of good advice for costume designers, but also for directors about how the costumes themselves can be used as storytelling devices. And this week I wrote an article about how Steven Spielberg plays around with tension and suspense, which are always kind of interesting for me. Um, And one strategy that he uses again and again, which I learned about, is he frames an important object or prop largely in the foreground so that the audience focus is then on what action that object prepends. So it's kind of like when you have – it's kind of like that famous gun rule where like if you have a gun in the movie – you show it, it. You show early it, on. and then it better be used because people are going to start wondering, like, what's the gun for? So just like that, it gets the audience wondering, how will the use of said object affect the outcome of the scene? So I don't know. I never really thought of, like, how you could use props in a way uh, that are, like, completely motionless uh, to build tension in a scene. So that was – that was that's my words of wisdom. I think of – it's not a Spielberg film, but a film I saw recently called The Autopsy of Jane Doe has – it's a horror film. Yes, I do watch horror films. Do uh, yes. <laughs> At the very beginning of the film, it's about an autopsy being performed on somebody. The mortician, 
he places bells on the toes of the cadavers. Um, and so at the very beginning, you wonder, like, why would that factor in? Why are we focusing on it? But then, of course, the bodies come to life and the bells are the cues to that. That is creepy as hell. That's like foreshadowing, too. Mm-hmm. So what about you, Emily? Okay, so I had the really good fortune of interviewing legendary scribe David Mamet on occasion of his masterclass launch. In the class, he teaches an introduction to dramatic writing, which I'll cover for all of you later in the summer since I was given access to it. But in the meantime, I'll share some quotes from our interview, which was excellent and all too short. Let me tell you, this man does not mince his words. His no-nonsense approach to screenwriting and playwriting was evident in our entire interview, during which he termed Hollywood, quote, a cross between a spa and a cesspool, which I thought was very evocative and true to form. And similar to the sound booth. (laughs) Yeah, I guess so. Mamet's main dramatic tenets are as follows. Every scene should be able to answer three questions. Who wants what from whom? What happens if they don't get it? And why now? He also told me that, quote, if it can't be shot and it can't be spoken, don't write it in your screenplay. Mamet proved that he was quite skeptical of film education in a formal sense. What he said was, quote, I want to see what film schools teach because I have this horrible suspicion that they don't do much of anything except keep kids off the street for four years. There are only three ways you can really learn how to make a movie. One is on set, the other is in the cutting room, and the third is in the theater watching with the audience. That's it. It was really a great interview. Thank and you. And we will link to that and all of the opportunities and articles that we've mentioned today in the post associated with this week's podcast. I have one shout out this week. Frameline, the venerable San Francisco International LGBT Film Festival, starts tonight and it runs through June 25th. The opening night film is Jennifer Crute's The Untold Tales of Armistead Mopan. And we had that film's talented DP, Shane King, on the podcast back when it premiered at South by Southwest. It was a roundtable episode of cinematographers called The Shoots That Almost Killed Us, and it's a fun one. Speaking of our interview podcasts, we have another one coming out on Monday as usual. That's right. Bitch. Yep. Bitch. (laughs) Yeah, bitch. Would you call me? So this was a really, (laughs) this was probably the most interesting film that Emily and I, we saw this movie together. (laughs) We did. At Sundance. It was late at night, too. Yeah, and it was the only movie we saw together there. And then we decided to do the interview together. Um, it was, we, it's a, I don't even know what to say about the movie. Yeah, it's, interesting me- means weird in this it's, instance. It's about a woman who turns into a dog, but. <laughs> but only in, not in form, only in behavior. Yeah, behavior in mind. Yes. So, so we talked with uh, the Mariana director, Palka. Mariana Palka. Uh, she also is the star, the woman who turns into, turns into the dog. And we talked with her at Sundance about that transformation. You might remember one of her earlier films called Good Dick. Um, she loves to really royal us with those, you know, great film titles. But Good Dick was amazing, and I recommend it as a good example of a low-budget early film. And Bitch is actually going to be at the uh, BAM Cinema Fest this year. Oh, so great. That's happening this week. Well, you can read about all this and more on nofilmschool.com. Please subscribe to us on iTunes and rate us while you're there, or you can find us on any of your favorite podcasting apps. And as always, stay in touch. I'm at LizFilm on Twitter. At E.L. Booter. At Jim underscore John underscore Jim. Jim John. And we're all at No Film School. Thanks, guys. See you next week. 